0: This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we meet Glenn Adamson, Artistic Director of Design Doha. We also visit the Eames Archives in California, plus a reflection on this year's Ralph Saltzman Prize. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Design Doha is one of the newest events on the creative calendar. The Biennial Fair hopes to nurture design talent from the Middle East and North Africa. It's an ambition being led by the event's artistic director, Glenn Adamson, who is a former director of New York's Museum of Arts and Design and previous head of research at London's V&A. Monocle's Henry Rees Sheridan caught up with Glenn to find out more about the event. He started by sharing why he was selected as artistic director. I actually hadn't been to Qatar before
1: I started working on this, and I didn't really have a lot of expertise in the region either. I suppose the reason they thought of me was because I have a very strong interest in the overlap between craft and design. And I like to say that Design Doha is also, in a funny way, a craft biennial, because when you look at design in the region, what you see is that so much of it is based very firmly in regional craft traditions that could be Wood carving, it could be ceramics, one thinks particularly of the tile work in the region, for example. It, of course, could be textiles and on and on. So what you will find is that most of the really leading edge design in the region has a very strong basis in artisanal know-how and specific regional, sometimes very powerfully spiritually infused craft traditions.
2: It was really a fascinating career with this emphasis on the overlap between design and craft, as you've said. It'd be great if you just, just recap your career so far and maybe explain how it's led up to the current approach that you bring to this project in particular, but also your general outlook. I guess it started for me when I
1: was an undergraduate in college and I had this encounter with Chinese ceramics, actually. I had this very strong experience of having a historic Tang Dynasty pot put in my hands, by a curator at one of the museums where I was studying, and it just seems so electrifying, so different from looking at slides in the dark, really an amazing thing to have a thousand-year-old artifact in your hands. Got curious, pursued my interest in it, went to graduate school, spent some time in Milwaukee as a curator there, and then I think the decisive thing really was working for eight years at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the fantastic repository of decorative arts and fine art in London, and I, ultimately was head of research there, also did a major exhibition about postmodernism. And that was like graduate school all over again, times 10, you know, being surrounded by those collections and those curators. And it really opened up the world of both design and craft. I suppose they would say applied art in London, this kind of unified field theory of objects. And that's really something I've tried to hold fast to since.
2: Do you think that people at the cutting edge of other fields in the visual arts kind of some of the look down on craft or things that have the word craft attached to it because it has somewhat kind of homely associations.
1: That was certainly true at the beginning of my career in the 1990s, and it was something I set out very purposefully to contest. The situation has really changed a lot though in fact if anything it's flipped around partly because craft is so firmly associated with historic practices of women people of color people from outside the eurocentric canon of art history and design history so if you want to think about a more inclusive practice whether you're an art historian or a curator or a writer you're almost bound to look at something that in effect is a craft tradition at the end of the day The other way of thinking about it, that craft is not so much a separate category from fine art or design, but rather is an active agent within those fields. You cannot make a really compelling artwork or design work, in most cases, without having some craft applied somewhere, whether it's by the author or by a fabricator. What we should be thinking about, not as so much as separate fields with overlaps, but rather thinking about craft as the kind of active mechanism by which creativity comes alive.
2: In terms of the kind of contemporary artists and makers who you work with, who are self-consciously crafts artists, are they making objects to be produced en masse and like sold in an industrial context, or are they producing objects to be exhibited in white wall galleries, more artistic spaces? I've been thinking
1: about this just recently. In fact, you know, in the 1950s, there was something that was called the designer craftsman movement, obviously not so gender sensitive at that time. But the idea was that, you would have craftspeople working in cereal production. In other words, they would make a 100 of something. A furniture maker would make a set of eight chairs for your 12 chairs, and then they might make the same chairs for somebody else, right? So it was almost this handmade, limited production run mentality. And what's very interesting is that after about 50 years in between – where there was much more of an orientation towards individualistic expressive sculptural objects that you might sell in an art gallery we seem to be back to this idea of making handmade things at such a price and such quantity that people can actually own them and weirdly i think the major reason for that is actually and this is very counterintuitive is actually the option of digital communications and here the most obvious example would be like selling on instagram So this allows you to go direct to your customer base, and it's really made a whole new generation of craft businesses possible. And I find that absolutely fascinating, not just because of the historical return to that shape of mid-century craft-based design, but also because of the very unexpected harmony or almost collaboration between digital and
2: analog ways of thinking. So a good time to be involved in craft-oriented art making and, and design. Yeah, 100%. And of course, that's true worldwide, which brings us
1: back to Design Doha, because you also have an ability, if you are working in, let's say, the Middle East, to project your studio's work and your identity and your brand across the whole world now in ways that would have been unimaginable 30 years ago.
2: Am I right in thinking that the organizers of Design Doha have built an entire design district in the city? What does it look like
1: Yeah, it's amazing. It's called the Meshreb District, and we sometimes do call it the Design District as well. And it is a brand new part of the city, not alone in that respect, but it's really had a huge amount of investment. There's extremely lavishly appointed hotels. There's M7, which is the design museum, which we're using as the headquarters for the biennial. There's also a beautiful studio just nearby, which is called Liwan, which is an absolutely beautifully converted historic women's school. It was one of the first places where women in Qatar could get an education. And it's been turned into this kind of atelier-based workshop structure where people can come and practice whatever trade they have, so ceramics, leatherwork, weaving. It's a real kind of hub of creativity. Altogether, the design district is one of the most active and most generative parts of the city, and it's fantastic to have the Biennial headquartered there.
2: And finally, I just want to ask you about writing in the area that, that you work in? Because I think you edit, don't you, several scholarly journals to do with crafts. Is, is, it, is it an interesting intellectual scene around crafts and, and making at the moment or not? Would we like to see things change? How are you thinking about the thinking around it? To a remarkable degree, it is this amazing
1: flourishing field. And when we started the Journal of Modern Craft, which is one of the academic periodicals that I helped to edit, We really did it in a, if you build it, maybe they'll come spirit. And indeed, that's what happened. You know, there are not a lot of academics who would call themselves craft historians or would identify themselves primarily in that way. But anthropologists and art historians and historians of science and architectural historians, even people who think about medicine and the history of the body. We've had contributions from all of those quarters, as well as creative practitioners. So it's turned out to be a remarkably effective intellectual trajectories. And then more recently, I've also started this online publication, which is called Material Intelligence. And the idea there is really to cross over those disciplinary boundaries and think about one material at a time. could be oak, linen, obsidian, rubber, leather and really open up the world of that material by getting different contributors from different kinds of
0: headspace. That was Glenn Adamson, Artistic Director of Design Doha. The event runs until the 5th of August, 2024. Next up, we visit the Eames archives in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a new gallery and collection space by the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity. Its aim to share with the public a vast collection of Ray and Charles Eames's mass-produced furniture, unique one-of-a-kind prototypes, and personal ephemera. Monocle's U.S. editor Chris Lord went along and sent us this report.
3: So now we're going to share what we're archiving here in the collection right now. Ready?
4: Oh. Those gasps you can hear are from a group of design writers and enthusiasts who've probably seen the chairs in front of us many times before. Yet there is something startling and brilliant about the space we've just walked into. This is the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity, a new museum in Richmond, California that's dedicated to the designers Ray and Charles Eames. Seeing so many of their design classics gathered together, you somehow feel in the presence of these two great minds. Their story, a couple who met and brought well-made furniture to the masses in mid-century America, is pretty well told. So with this new museum, how much more is there to really say about the first family of U.S. design?
3: When a guest enters this space for the first time, they're seeing so many chairs, tables, and getting to see it all together. You can start to see the learning that Ray and Charles had in making these pieces.
4: Lisa Dimitrios is the granddaughter of Charles Eames and the curatorial lead of the new museum.
3: This is a chance to unpack the way Ray and Charles worked and be able to show their boundless curiosity that informs everything they did, both personal and professional. And so whether in this collection, it's a painting from Ray's early years to maybe a letter to a passport to some pieces from the exhibits, it just opens up this whole world for people who thought they knew Ray and Charles more for just chairs, but there's so much more to learn about them.
4: The inaugural show is a tribute to the analogue world that the couple created in their design studio, the Eames office, which they ran together for 40 years in Venice, Los Angeles. From early paintings and ideas hastily written down on silver cigarette papers, to the wooden prototypes for the steel three-seater that's still found in airports around the world, there is an extraordinary amount of material here, and it's only a peak of the 40,000 objects catalogued so far. The curators are still cracking open crates and long-sealed drawers, finding more and more stuff made and hoarded by the couple over the years. Pride of Place are some of the earliest prototypes of the moulded plywood shell seats, several of which cracked as they were put through their paces. Sam Graw, Chief Brand Officer for the Eames Institute, picks up the tour.
1: I think what's special about here, we have some of the handmade shells that were made by Ray and Charles in their apartment in Los Angeles when they first moved there in the early 1940s. And what's great about these is that you really see that they learned by doing. And they made these designs by hand and it evolved. We have multiple variations of that chair and with each one they learned something new to get to a point where something could be mass produced. And so design for them wasn't about drawing perfect form on a sheet of paper, it was about learning what one could do with an industrial process to a material to make it something that would serve people in their own homes
4: so Lisa is pulling back the curtain to reveal a wow impressive collection there's classics here there's the ottoman and the lounges and so on in the back here there's this amazing chaise longue so Lisa maybe you can talk me through maybe I can even demonstrate it slightly I don't Absol- know
3: please do yeah Have so let me adjust the cushions Billy Wilder was a dear friend of Charles and Ray and yeah. What's wonderful is he wanted to have a couch for his office in Hollywood. Really liked to take naps, but not too long. So he'd fold his arms across his chest. And then as he fell asleep, his arms would drop and he'd wake himself up. So it was the perfect couch for having a quick nap during the day.
4: I should say I'm now on this chest long and it's incredibly comfortable. But yes, if you were to lie long enough with your arms folded over your chest... They would slip off.
3: The reason the furniture is so successful is just because it went into production. It didn't stop there. Working with Herman Miller and Vitra was a chance to be able to keep improving the design, seeing what was working. Ray and Charles cared very little how a chair looked. They wanted to know if it was doing its job in 5, 10, 15, 25 years. And we're able to show that here.
4: We live in a moment where we're thinking so much about the preciousness of objects and the fact that there is a finite amount of resources around. And I wonder, having gone through this archive with such uh, depth and understanding, I wonder if you've drawn anything from looking through this anything we can take from it in that way of thinking about preciousness of objects?
3: Ray and Charles were never just thinking about themselves, they were thinking of the larger context of the environment they were very good friends with Buckminster Fuller and so even in the fabrication of their furniture, they were thinking always how they could do it more sustainably in other words, there are limited resources if someone's going to throw away their chair the plastic one, that would be bad for the environment, therefore they discontinued it they always talked about within seven generations and therefore you're thinking about what's coming after you and I think they always Wanted to improve the world and change it for the better any
5: which way they could. What is your definition of design, Monsieur Eames?
1: One could describe design as a plan for arranging elements to accomplish a particular purpose.
5: Is design an expression of art?
1: I would rather say it's an expression
6: of purpose. It may, if it is good enough, later be judged as art.
5: Is design a craft for industrial purposes?
6: No, but design may be a solution to some industrial problems.
4: That was a Q&A that Charles Eames did with some French students in the 1970s, and one of the many films that the couple made over their long career. They were also avid collectors of eye-pleasing homeware, foreign stationery and well-made wooden toys, all things that fired their imagination and are now part of the museum's collection. Until now, much of this material was held in multiple warehouses and a ranch in California's wine country that's owned by Lisa Demetrios' mother and was never open to the public. The ranch is currently undergoing renovations with a plan to open that up as a larger museum dedicated to the Eames' legacy in the years to come. John Kerry is CEO of the Eames Institute.
5: We hope that this is an organisation that does more than preserve the past. It really provides a bit of a roadmap for the future. There's still a lot of relevance to the things that the Ames has created, however many decades ago. Our hope is to expand to other creative legacies. We're starting here. So we have a very large collection of um, industrial design objects that were collected from roughly, I'd say, about 1920 to approximately 1990. Um, from everyone from Dieter Rams to anonymous household objects that, that you might have seen in your grandparents' pantry. And it ranges from toasters and vacuums to juice squeezers, radios. And so our hope is that this industrial design collection, for example, that has these hallmarks of domesticity can also be an on-ramp to the Eames' work.
4: John Carey, To really understand the Eameses, you have to get beyond the Ottomans and the armchairs. Because it's not just about what they made, but design as a way of seeing and thinking as much as doing. Eric Haywood runs San Francisco's book slash store and has created the gift shop at the front of the new museum. He spent time delving into the Eames archive looking for inspiration.
5: So, this is a cabinet that was one of the earlier designs that Charles Eames did with Eero Saarinen. One of the surprises that I always love about the Eameses is is you always got to look at everything and you start to see the way they saw. So, you open this very plain drawer. And inside is just an absolute treasure box of just little things they found and loved. So we've got
4: Japanese stationery in here. We've got what looked like greetings cards from the other side of the world. There's stuff from US government printing office. What are we looking at?
5: All kinds of envelopes and little books. And they loved all typography. They loved all color. They loved all paper. They loved anything done with care, color, imagination. With a bit of fun, with a bit of play to it. There's one
4: more piece that I wondered if you could just show me, which is... This amazing vertical xylophone, isn't it? What is, what is it we're whats looking at here?
5: A, it's called a musical tower. These were designed for the Time Life building. There were two of them. You're looking at basically a, a tall column that's filled with xylophone slides. And if you drop a marble down, it plays them all the way down. And I can give you a demonstration.
4: the last marble falling out. Eric Haywood, thank you so much for talking to Monocle Radio. Thank you. For Monocle in Richmond, California, I'm Chris Lord.
0: The Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity is now taking bookings. For more information, go to eamesinstitute.org. The Ralph Saltzman Prize was founded in 2022 by Lisa Saltzman. Bearing the name of the founder of US brand Design the prize is backed by the Design Museum in London and aims to champion emerging, world-changing creatives. Making the award distinct is the fact that those nominated for its shortlist are selected by a cohort of more established career designers who operate within the Design Museum's network. This year's winner, Artua Apreseo, who was nominated by Italian designer Martino Gamper, joined me in the studio to talk about her work. But first, let's hear from Johanna Agamon-Ross, the Conrad Foundation Chief Curator at the Design Museum.
7: I think it's really nice to have a peer-to-peer nomination. Some of the nominees are not directly familiar with the people nominating them, so it feels quite flattering that these people know of their work. It's also a testament to a kind of camaraderie within the design community, people don't work against each other, to work with each other, and that support I think is really important. Designers definitely find different things to look for in the work of other designers. It might be that they appreciate a particular production process, something that maybe as a curator or a writer you don't have the same understanding for. This year we saw a lot of experiments within materiality, and I think that that shows that many of the designers nominating are interested in this. And it also reflects, I guess, their own preoccupations at that particular point in time.
0: I mean, Atua, this is a perfect moment to bring you in. Let, let's talk about experimenting with materiality that's come to almost define your work. When I look at you know, some of these pieces, there's a bookcase in clay and wood, which is quite surprising. There's a Wedgwood plate with uh, borosilicate glass. You, you're playing with all these different materials. Where did that desire for experimentation come from for, for you personally?
6: I always start working with either the, ma- the material or the process that I want to explore and often combining both the material and the process. In the work that I'm exhibiting at the Design Museum, it's a research project that I've been working for the last five years where I've been looking at different ways of combining discarded or waste borosilicate glass with ceramics.
0: What do you think... People could learn from being willing to experiment and push and play with materials. Does, does it change the nature of what you ultimately produced? Like if, you, if you're starting with the material and you're toying with the form, does that inform the actual designs that you make at the end of the day?
6: It's a bit like if you follow a recipe or you write your own and you explore to see what's possible. So learning directly from, from a material, not taking... In the making and the material world, there is a lot of kind of rules or or things that people say this works this doesn't work or this is good this is bad there is all these labels but if you look beyond that then you can like find your own way of doing things try to find new ways of expressing something with a material or make a material take forms and also combining things I tend to combine things that normally wouldn't go together or they haven't been combined very much My practice is run or or driven by curiosity. I really like to do things where I don't know what's going to happen. I learn through the making. In my case, I, I start working on the material, seeing what's possible, and then the shape and the form comes later. It's not something that I start thinking about. I don't think I'm going to make a bookshelf. And then I start looking for a material... I start first working with clay, and then I thought, oh, I want to make a bookshelf. Maybe I combine it with wood. It's more like like that.
0: So I guess the, the, the Saltzman Prize is really about, in my mind, kind of setting an agenda for the next five years, let's say, of, of, of the way that we practice design. Is there a way that this curiosity this willingness to experiment could be scaled if medium-sized design firms are kind of looking at the work that you're doing are there lessons that they can they can pull from your practice
6: i think they could get designers to look into their production systems and see how they can do things differently and i think that i will be very happy to do that that sounds like very exciting to be able to work with smaller scale or medium scale manufacturers
0: I mean, Johanna, I've got to ask as well, what do you hope people take away from Atua's work? Why was it so important to recognise her as, as the winner of this year's prize?
7: She's really brave in that exploration, and I think that that's something that we should really champion. When you see her work on display in the design museum, there is this real urgency to it. You see the imprints of Atua's fingers, you understand the experimentation that's gone into it. In selecting as the winner of this year's prize, the jury were really convinced by this experimentation with clay and borosilicate glass and to see what kind of new forms that take. The fact that within Atwas' work, she then uses waste materials that otherwise would just go into landfill, also felt extremely important to us. And this feels like the beginning of something rather than the end. To be able to follow that and to give that prominence and a platform at this point in time, I think is really exciting because I think then we will see more of it going forward. And as you said, there might be the opportunity for this to find its way into other parts of making, and that would be really wonderful, so I think that using it as a prompt and a discussion starter both for the design industry and manufacturing, I think is really vital
0: Atua, in terms of using waste material, is this something that you 're seeking out, or again is it and and deliberately looking i guess from a sustainability angle to incorporate it, or is it again just a, a, a curiosity with this is something different, this is something unexpected, I want to play with it.
6: There is definitely a preoccupation for sustainability in my practice. I used to work before much more with like synthetic materials and I never felt like totally good about it. The impact of my practice is important to me and I'm in interested of in materials in general. And I try to not think about it as this is waste because at the end this is just like labels that people give them. So I like to look at any material as a raw material and as a possibility to a medium to make something with it.
0: I want to change gears here slightly or two. I, I want to bring it sort of back to your nomination for this prize from Martino Gamper. He's been quoted widely uh, amazing compliments about your work, but one of the things he did say is that your work is outside of fashion and does not follow any trend. How do you operate in a way where maybe you're less influenced by the Zeitgeist and more influenced by yeah, what you're curious in. It.
6: So I, fi- I try to find inspiration through the making process, through looking at materials. I don't look so much at what other people is doing. I don't find it it really helps me to to make or to create new things. Of course, I never you never make things in isolation, and you are influenced by other people and what what's happening around you, of course. But I don't like to only look at designers' work or at even artists. I I, I find inspiration in. Many things, and but the main one is just the making and working with materials, interacting with materials directly. I used to set a studio with uh, Jochen Holtz, which is a glass blower, in in London, and he works with borosilicate glass. And I learned through him that just because he just threw it to the bin directly, I was like, hmm, what's this? Why don't you recycle this? And then he told me that it can't. Because it has a different composition to normal glass, so then that got me thinking: Is like, how can I do something with this material? Because it comes in very nice colors. I can use his waste, and I just thought like both glass and ceramics need heat to to transform and to become like fire pieces. So I, I started thinking about combining them and doing a small test and and then five years later I'm here, still doing that and, and really excited to do more. One thing that I
7: think is really important to highlight with that and that the prize also kind of makes significant in selecting Atua's work is the importance of design research. I think that we don't really talk a lot about that. It's something of course that happens within academic institutions but we don't necessarily highlight or foreground it so much within museums. The Design Museum currently has a display on by Future Observatory which is looking into this idea of design research and what it is and I think astua's work really beautifully embodies design research and it's very clear that it's through this journey and being able to do these residencies that she's done in both Europe and Asia that she's come upon this and has been able to develop it. And to have that space and time uh, to engage with the material or a subject matter, I think for any designer is really important. And at times to be able to sit outside of the commercial context, having those conversations and being able to foreground those conversations within the museum
6: through the Rolf Saltzman Prize, I think this year is really important. I know it's tricky because no one pays you to research, but i would be lucky to... I applied to the residencies and I got them funded. So I I had this incredibly privileged situation where I could spend three months just looking at how to combine materials without having to worry about making an outcome that then I could sell or that it could be shown in an exhibition. And after these three months, then I will go back to my studio and then start applying it to pieces that could be exhibited.
0: That was Atua Priseo and Johanna Egerman ross The Ralph Saltzman Prize display is on show at London's Design Museum until the 15th of April, 2024. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans with editing assistance from Lily Austin and Tamsin Howard. I'm Nick Manice, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.